Tad. Um, kids, you are dismissed um, to your classes. If you're visiting with us and you have kiddos, just follow all the people and you'll find your way there. Somebody will help you along the way. Uh, as Tad has already mentioned, I am a pastoral resident here. Been doing that for the last year and it has been a huge joy for me and my family to serve in that capacity. And then I get the privilege to be here today uh, to open up God's Word together. Uh, we'll be in Matthew, really the first four chapters, but particularly we'll look at chapter 2, verses 13, and kind of following a little bit. So if you'd like to turn there, that would be great. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the seats in front of you, so be sure to grab that and follow along as we work together this morning in God's Word. So, I wonder, have you ever purchased a gift for someone during the summer that you waited until Christmas to give them? Anyone ever done that? No? For many of you, like myself, this is kind of unthinkable because to think that far ahead, it kind of hurts my brain a little bit. But believe it or not, there are some among us who do this. They actually buy gifts early and sometimes way early. My mother-in-law is a master at this. She once bought a gift for Everett. For three years, it sat in our closet waiting to be opened. I am not joking. Three years this present sat in my wife's closet waiting to be opened. It literally sat there waiting to be enjoyed by a wide-eyed kiddo in amazement. Sitting in the closet, it was, well, annoying. <laughs> it was in the way. We tripped over it and was like, when can we give this? But there's something about a gift when it's realized and enjoyed that brings great pleasure, that really brings amazement, especially when it was purchased a long time ago. Sometimes when you learn the story behind a gift and the preparations that were taken to secure it for you, you seem to appreciate it a little bit more. And that's exactly what we are trying to do with unpacking different preparations that God had been doing all through the Old Testament to get to Christmas. God had indeed been making preparations primarily for the first Christmas morning long before it was realized. This is precisely how Matthew perceives the Old Testament. The book of Matthew, to a Jewish people, which is hard for us to read sometimes, they read the beginning chapters of Matthew kind of like one glorious gift after another, being brought out of the dusty closet to be opened, fully realized, and deeply enjoyed. Follow my logic for me. Okay, so Matthew 1 is full of age-old promises being fulfilled. Matter of fact, five times, just in chapter 1 and 2, Matthew quotes the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 2 is a retelling of Israel's history applied to Jesus. So as the history is retold through Jesus, they begin to realize that in the face of this baby are all the promises to them fulfilled. Well, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is on the scene. He confronts the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he tells them they are not true 
children of Abraham. A bit of a slap in the face. But those that repent and trust the true son of Abraham, which we'll see in a moment is Jesus, are actually the children of Abraham. Therefore, it is not based on ethnicity, and it's open to all. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tested in the wilderness. That sound familiar? But in a twist, he does not fall into sin and disobedience. He does what the people of Israel could not do in the wilderness. One Old Testament story, one Old Testament theme, one after another unwrapped to be fully realized and enjoyed in this baby whom we call Jesus. It's said by one commentator that Matthew contains the greatest number of links with Judaism and the Old Testament. It probably was placed first in the collections of the Gospels when they were being initially brought together in the second century and viewed as on par with an already existing Hebrew scriptures. Matthew is a great student of the Old Testament and brings it to bear on that first Christmas morning. The book of Matthew is rich with twists and turns of Old Testament texts being realized most fully on Christmas morning. So, as we have already seen just a few moments ago, Matthew sets the stage with scenes, sounds, and pictures of Old Testament stories in order to push this baby into ultimate fulfillment of all things Israel, of all things Old Testament. With the birth narrative of Jesus, he retells Israel's history in an effort to awaken the people to see the baby as a fulfillment of the long-awaited promise. This is no simple birth narrative, but it is an unfolding, an unwrapping of all the goodness of God that he has set the stage for that first Christmas morning. Well, last week, Pastor Chuck walked us through God becoming man. Well, and he pointed us to many Old Testament prophecies that show the fulfillment of that. This was clearly not normal and a significant sign that salvation has come. So this morning, we're going to look at yet another link from the Old Testament to the New Testament that screams with very glorious exclamations that Christ is the Messiah. He truly is the Savior. The long-awaited King is here, the one that everything has been pointing towards. Here in the birth narrative, for you and I, it's easy to get lost in all the details and think they are a bit insignificant. Well, as to one of those small, seemingly insignificant details we're going to turn and look to this morning. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13, and I'll read to verse 15. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child. 
to destroy him. And he arose, took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So what's the story? Well, Herod has been told by some wise men that a king of the Jews has been born in Bethlehem. So Herod, this madman, <laughs> becomes troubled that his kingdom is in jeopardy. So what does he do? Devise a very hideous plan to kill all children in Bethlehem two years old and under. So God intercedes and warns Joseph to flee Egypt for, or actually rather to flee to Egypt for protection against this madman. To Egypt for protection. Perhaps this sounds a bit familiar. People of Jewish descent going to Egypt for protection. If you're not a, a major biblical scholar, let me kind of connect the dots for you for just a moment. Well, back in Genesis, which is the beginning of our Bible, chapter 46, Israel was told to go to Egypt because a famine had left them starving and there was no food but in Egypt. So this story is of major importance to the history of Jewish people up to this point. God had made provisions through Joseph. And if you're familiar with the story, well, the plot only thickens when you look at Joseph, but that's for another time. So God had made provisions through this man named Joseph long before the famine hit. God had provided for them, and now Matthew seems to think that he's providing again. He sees a bit of a, a pattern here and leaves little ambiguity that this baby is connected with the people of Israel. So if you're not convinced up to this point, well, Matthew goes a bit of a step further. He actually cites, quotes, an Old Testament passage to place Jesus' story right in the thick of the story of Israel. He's sort of saying, hey, this baby, this is what we have been waiting for. In essence, I believe Matthew is saying God's promises are fulfilled, are realized in this baby. All promises towards Israel are towards this baby. But here's the kicker that we'll see as we go along. Not only for Israel, but for all who would repent and trust Jesus. So let's unpack that a little bit further. How is it that we can conclude that? Well, Matthew directly quotes an Old Testament passage. Out of Egypt I called my son. Where does this come from and why this text? I hope is the question that you're asking. If not, I'll ask it for you. Well, it comes from a prophet, Hosea, who prophesied 760 to 710 B.C. for you history buffs who want to know that. Well, Hosea comes on the scene when the nation of Israel, the people, they were in turmoil. By the time he begins to be a prophet, the kingdom of Israel has already split to a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom because of internal conflict. So he prophesied for about 50 years 
to an obstinate people who eventually get absorbed into the pagan culture surrounding them. Hosea is quite rememberable in the fact he was asked by God to marry a prostitute. Who would inevitably leave him time and time again to which he was to pursue her and take her back every time. This was done to put on display God's relationship with Israel. Time and time again, they would leave him, but he would pursue. Then we hit our quote from Matthew, which is found in Hosea 11.1, which says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So the nation of Israel was the son whom God called and he loved. So Hosea is going back to the infancy of Israel when they were in Egypt and enslaved. If you know the story, God did indeed call them out, which is what we call the Exodus, a whole Old Testament book devoted to this grand, glorious event. And in a great act of love, he rescued them fully from the hands of the Egyptian. Hosea, in his prophecy, calling them and telling them to repent over and over again, he reminds them of God's pursuit and God's provisions grounded in a deep love for them. But who are these people? Why them? What's so important? Who are they? Well, back in Genesis 32, we have a figure named Jacob, which is Abraham's grandson. We unpacked that a little bit last week. And we know that Abraham was the original promise was given to him. So Jacob is told in Genesis 32 that he, God, this is what God says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. So what's happening here? Jacob was renamed Israel. Or an individual has been renamed, but Jacob has 12 sons that become this nation of Israel, and therefore they continue to be God's covenant people because they remain in the line of Abraham that we discussed fairly thoroughly last week. So, promise of redemption goes with Israel. Just as it has started with Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, and now here in Genesis 32, Israel is God's covenant people, carriers of the promise, particularly, I said that right, particularly, of the promise. Now all of a sudden, it's a nation. Jacob's been renamed, and now it goes with his sons who grow. But what about them? Why are they so important? Well, the story of Israel is, if we could summarize it, sin, exile, restoration. Hosea himself, through his words and actions of marrying a prostitute, he shows that they would sin, be exiled, and then restored. Though the people, if you look through the Old Testament, though they were given priests to make atonement for sins, 
and prophets to guide them in holiness and kings to rule over them as God's appointee, the pattern continued throughout all of Israel's history. Sin, exile, restoration, repeat. Sin, exile, restoration, repeat. None of it worked to keep them a faithful people to God. But Matthew is screaming that it's going to change. He's tapping into this long belief that the Messiah, the anointed one, is coming. As one commentator put it, Israel's exodus from Egypt that Hosea and Matthew both reference. This event was taken already by Old Testament prophets as a prefiguring of the ultimate messianic salvation. And Matthew's quotation here thus reinforces his presentation of the childhood history of Jesus as the dawning of the Messianic age. Matthew undoubtedly sees God's preparation all throughout the Old Testament to point towards one thing. One thing. This baby whom we call Jesus. Their story now can change from sin, exile, to final restoration. What all the other moments from the Old Testament of restoration have been pointing towards is this baby whom we call Jesus. And this is not only for Israel, but you as well. See, the story of Israel is your story. It's our story. Remember at the beginning when I said John the Baptist gets up in the Pharisees and Sadducees' face? Remember that? Wasn't that long ago. Remember? He gets up in their face a little bit, and what does he say? You, don't you presume to be children of Abraham. That is because it's not based upon ethnicity, but repentance and faith in Jesus. That is why we can say this is not only for Israel alone, but open to all. And why do pagans come from the east to worship him? Hmm. Why is this all important? Well, Matthew continues with Israel's history as a backdrop to tell the story of Jesus. But what's astonishing is there's a twist. See, Jesus does what they cannot do, be without sin and remain faithful to God's covenant. See, this is a staggering difference in human history. A man who does not sin, he was sinless, and this is most clearly seen in Matthew chapter 4. So we've noticed that Matthew has been telling the birth narrative of Jesus just steeped in Old Testament stories, and he carries it over to Matthew chapter 4. So what happens there? Jesus, after his baptism, which is really rich in Israel's history, but that's for another time. 
So Jesus, after his baptism, he is pushed into the wilderness by the Spirit. Now, why would the Spirit push Jesus into the wilderness? Well, perhaps to show that he embodies all that Israel was supposed to be. A faithful, covenant-keeping people. Well, how do we know this? Because all of Jesus' rebuttals to Satan's temptations are scriptures taken from instructions to the people, to the people of Israel, that they did not follow just like you and I do not follow. But Jesus does what man cannot, be without sin and remain faithful to God. For instance, the first quotation that Jesus uses to fight off Satan's temptation in Matthew 4, 4, it, it comes from Deuteronomy 8, 3, which again, if you spend any time there, which you should afterwards, is a retelling of the Exodus, a retelling of God's provision, particularly of food for them than when they were in the wilderness. This, as Deuteronomy states, here's what it says, was to show them that man does not live on bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. They learned that in the wilderness many years before this moment. They had heard that food fell from the sky. Just when they thought they were going to die and they were starving, food fell from the sky. So that they would understand. Isn't that bizarre? Food from the sky. I wonder what, never mind, that's a tangent. Um, man does not live on bread alone. This was done for them to learn, but man lived on every word that comes from the mouth of God. They had learned this so long ago. Now, Jesus shows them and will show them how to fully feast off of every word of the Lord. And it will be through him. He now shows them how to feast, how to live on the word of the Lord, and it will ultimately be through him. Matter of fact, these verses that Jesus quotes would have been repeated daily by the audience reading this birth narrative of Jesus. I, I cannot imagine how their hearts perhaps leapt for joy because for the first time they see fully applied and obeyed the words they held extremely close to their hearts. One after another, Jesus fights off temptation with the instructions that God have given them from long ago. These instructions that God gave in Deuteronomy were not mere suggestions, but the way to be sustained, to have life. You see, Jesus, the God-man, as we saw last week, is the only perfect keeper of God's covenant, the only one truly right before the Lord. And church and those who are visiting with us, it demands our attention if we are ever to be right 
with the Lord. So what do we do with this? What are some conclusions that we can walk away from as we see Matthew unpack the Old Testament one by one? Well, perhaps like my son when he opened that gift, purchased long before he actually opened it, maybe you could wake up Christmas morning and know that you have received in full the thing hoped for in Jesus. The thing that you most need has been provided for you. But see, that's the problem. Most of us hardly know what we hope for, right? Most of us hardly know what we truly need. Maybe you came this morning not thinking, I don't need anything. Well, maybe you can let this biblical story of Israel compel you to consider your own path. Maybe for the first time in your life, you could consider your current path. Is it a path of sin? Is it a path of rebellion? Is it a path of overindulgence of self? Is it a path of destructful tendencies? Perhaps you need to wake up and realize that Jesus is the only way to break the pattern of sin and find healing. You see, Matthew is wanting them to feel the weight of their past actions, wanting them to see that they have not been able to do it yet, to remain faithful to God. And Jesus gets plopped right into the wilderness to show them, I am the faithful keeper of God's covenant. Like John the Baptist says in Matthew 3.10, even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. You see, the axe is ready to strike, either to kill sin or pronounce judgment. The axe is laid at the root of your soul. If you feel the coldness of the axe laying on your soul, would you respond? Would you respond? Because there is a man, not only a man, but a God-man who's provided a way for you to be made whole and right. Would you respond? Thirdly, perhaps we could see the wonderful divine nature of Christmas from all the preparations given in the Old Testament. How is it that this whole entire beginning of this book comes to fulfillment in this baby that we call Jesus? Wake up Christmas morning and savor the God-man who saved us. With all the chaos of Christmas, please don't forget that God is a loving and faithful God. See the divine nature of Christmas. See the God-man. See God in all of his wonder. Wake up and rejoice that God has saved us through this baby whom we call Jesus. Lastly, wake up and realize God's promises 
are fulfilled in this baby. Not only for Israel, but for all who would repent and trust Jesus. You are loved beyond measure. Once again, how is it that a God would make all these preparations, seemingly just insignificant details, insignificant stories of the Old Testament, why would he go through all that preparation to get to Christmas morning? Well, I think it's because you're loved. Christmas brings so many emotions for all of us. Some good and some terrible. <laughs> and that's extremely unfortunate. But there is a God who came to earth and took on flesh to do what you cannot do. Friends and brothers and sisters, you are loved beyond measure. One Old Testament story after another that Matthew unfolds to scream, he's here. He's here. God's promises are being fulfilled. And for you, it's not only for Israel, but all who would repent and trust Jesus, church, brothers and sisters, live as if that is true. Don't get caught up with the Christmas chaos and forget that there is a God who orchestrated all that we rejoice in this season. Let us pray. Father God, you are incredibly loving in how you prepare and how you got to Matthew chapter 1. And Matthew, as he's beginning to tell the story of Jesus, he can't help but see all of your work, to see all of your love, and most importantly, to see your faithfulness in bringing about Jesus. Father, as we sit in these moments and as we go through this week, may we savor the God-man. May we read the birth narrative a bit differently this year. May we see your work, see your hands, see your faithfulness in bringing about the most glorious thing that we could ever think of, and that's God in the flesh. Father, I pray for those among us who perhaps have never seen you in all your fullness. That maybe perhaps something about today, something about looking at the story of Jesus has uh, spurred their heart a little bit. Perhaps you've given them a bit of understanding. And I pray, Father, would they please not leave this place without responding to this baby whom we call Jesus. Lord, that they would seek somebody out, that they would find an individual, perhaps who brought them or somebody that they know, to explore and think through the story a bit more. Because these promises fulfilled in Jesus are not only for the people of Israel, but for all of us. So as we rejoice this Christmas, as we sit with family, May your promises fulfilled in Jesus sustain us and challenge us and encourage us. It's in your holy and precious name we pray.
Amen.